Hello, and welcome to Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. Resolve is a youth-led social enterprise that spotlights the climate crisis and builds climate action communities in South Asia. I am your host, Ronak Mainali, and this podcast, Rewind, is a documentation of my journey learning about the climate crisis through quick and casual conversations with experts, activists, entrepreneurs, and everyone else making a difference in this space. Hello, everyone, to what is the 11th episode of the Rewind podcast. Uh, It's quite hard to believe that we've done 11 of these already, but um, we've learned a lot along the way. We've had a terrific guest, and today's episode in that regard will be no different. However, it will be different in the sense that we're not focusing just on South Asia. Uh, we're sort of broadening out, broadening our horizons. Uh, we're going to be looking at the economy as a whole, and we'll be exploring the economy and climate change, and more specifically, uh, degrowth economics. Now, economics is often studied and practiced in isolation without uh, social or environmental consequences, and this is clearly reflected on the condition of the planet now, which of course faces a lot of environmental degradation and of course uh, wealth inequality as well. And to discuss these consequences and to specifically explore degrowth economics, uh, we are joined by Timothée Parikh. Now Timothée is a social scientist originally from Versailles in France uh, who focuses his study on degrowth economics. He received his PhD from the Centre d'études et de recherches sur le développement uh, which is part of the University of Clermont Auvergne, as well as the Stockholm Resilience Center in Stockholm University, Sweden. Uh, his thesis is titled uh, The Political Economy of Degrowth. Uh, Timothy is also very active on Twitter at Tim Parikh and also maintains a blog. Uh, and I stole his bio from the blog, so I hope that's completely fine. <laughs> but yeah, for those who want to learn more about degrowth, Timothy has excellent resources uh, ranging from books, academic articles, and podcasts. He also regularly responds to criticisms on degrowth. So uh, his website is an excellent place to learn more on the topic. Uh, thank you, Timothy. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure. Uh, also with us today, after a long hiatus from the podcast, is uh, Shivam Rizal. I think he was last here on episode three, uh, where he sort of usurped me, took my place, uh, and did an excellent job hosting the podcast. So how are you doing today, Shivam? Hey, Ronak. Hey, Tim. Uh, doing very, very well. Um, you know, as many of you know, if you've listened to past uh, episodes, I do have a background in uh, development, international economics, which I love to rant about. So I could not resist jumping in on this podcast. So really, really excited to have this chat. <laughs> I, I was just about to ask you why you decided to hop on this podcast and not the other ones. But now you just you just you just did my job. It's absent. <laughs> it is it is it is it is not a judgment on other guests. It is a positive judgment on this topic more than anything else. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I sort of threw you under the bus there. But let, let's get let's get right into the episode. So, so of course, uh, most of the criticisms of the current economic systems are related to the social aspects, uh, such as wealth disparity. However. There is now more work done on how capitalism and its constant pursuit of growth uh, is extremely detrimental to the environment. Now, Timothy, what is it about the current economic system and growth that has such a detrimental effect on the environment? Wow. Okay, you're starting with a big question. Uh, I, I think we can take this question from a number of ways. Uh, 
one way I like to take it is to the bit, the end of the pipe way of looking of the, the consequences of economic activity on the environment. So before we talk about the expansion of these activities, which is economic growth, we can just look at the bulk of, of the economic activities. And what we see today is unsustainable patterns of resource use. So basically we're using more and more resources. We extract more and more water, more and more fossil fuels. Uh, we use more and more land. So there's more and more resource use on one side. And then we do something with these natural resources. We transform them into goods and services. And in the process, we expulse waste back into nature. That creates a diversity of pollution, air pollution, contribution to climate change, water pollution, uh, things that lead to biodiversity loss. So you get a number of environmental effects. And so what's unsustainable, I would say, it's, um, it's the scale of these effects. And that's why it's important to talk about economic growth. You know, when we speak of pollution, if you just drop like uh, a teaspoon of oil in the ocean, that does not quite qualify as pollution. You know, it just dissolves and, and nothing happens. If you drop, you know, a, a very large amount of oil, then you have an oil spill uh, with all the disastrous consequences we know. So the problem is, as economies grow, what we notice empirically is that they use more and more resources from nature and they expose more and more uh, waste into nature. And so these tiny transformation of natures that were not quite problematic at the beginning becomes very problematic as their scale increase. So here, the, the problem, and perhaps that's before we talk even of the quality of these economic activities, and some of them may be more sustainable than others, any human activity has necessarily ecological limits by the mere fact that we cannot overpass uh, the laws of thermodynamics, the finiteness of the planet. We cannot go against, you know, the threshold of absorption of ecosystems. So whatever you're doing in your economy, if you're doing this in an infinitely, exponentially, permanently growing manner, you will sooner or later have an environmental problem. Okay, so before we get into the topic of degrowth, what was it that introduced you to the concept in the first place? Like sort of your journey with degrowth, I oh. guess, at the beginning. Well, I've, I've, I've been an economics nerd for quite a long time, studied economics from day one at university and, and loved it very much. Went into the classic neoclassical economics uh, diploma and then started to get, a, I did an Erasmus in Sweden. There I discovered climate change and environmental issues and I came back, you know, with some energy. I'm like, oh, I've been training economics, so don't worry. I'm just going to apply all the tools I have and I'm going to just, we're going to solve that problem. Then I realized that I was just simply not equipped. Like all the tools, the theories, the concept, the methods I, I was given as a bachelor student in mainstream economics was just insufficient. And so I decided to study environmental economics, which is the application of neoclassical theory to environmental problems. I've learned new theories, new tools, but I realized there was just still some limits, you know, and we can discuss more about the limits, but the limit is that Neoclassical economics still abide to certain assumptions in mainstream economics that, for example, only look at whatever bears a price in the economy. So you're just leaving out an entirety of 
a, a lot of uh, non-economic sectors, social and ecological wealth that is absolutely significant to understand the situation we're in. So I've decided, okay, I need some more tools. I need some more concepts. So I went to Sweden and studied ecological economics. So ecological economics too is, is different to environmental economics. Environmental economics is the application of neoclassical theory to environmental issues. Ecological economics is a heterodox school of thought. So it's an alternative school of economics with different assumptions, a different concept, different theories. So I've studied this. And when you study ecological economics, which starts from the laws of biology, you know, it's you, you, we often say that environmental economics is economists studying the environment, whereas ecological economics is ecologists studying the economy. So uh, you do this, you start from thermodynamics, you start from laws of ecology, you start from a, a, a more rigorous understanding of, of, of planetary systems. And then, then you start to have this weird feeling in your head, be like, okay, but... In economics, I've learned that economies, you know, they're, they're forever growing. But now I realize that if they're forever growing, and to do this, they rely on the use of energy. And, it, and if, because of the law of entropy, we cannot have uh, exponentially increasing transformation of energy. And if materials are finite on Earth, well, then there's, there's going to be a problem. And that's, I think, how I discovered degrowth, because degrowth, that was the initial insight. When you come back to the 70s and the work of Nicolas Georgescu-Rogan, one of the first economists to apply the laws of thermodynamics to economics as a science, uh, you realize that we have to completely rethink the way we understand the economy based on all the interaction it has with nature. So that's then I discovered degrowth, but then I realized I went to the University of Barcelona back then, did the summer school, met a lot of people working on it, and discovered that degrowth was not only uh, an ecological theory, but has developed into an entire critical paradigm of uh neoliberalism, capitalism, a growth-based economy, globalization, and many other topics I'm sure we'll have time to talk about. But that's how I discovered it. For me, at first, it was a very useful analytical tool. It helped me to solve many, improve my way to understand inequality and the link with environmental degradation, things like this that was very limited in my understanding when I was just applying neoclassical uh, glasses to this. That's, I just want to quickly add, that's really interesting you say that, Tim, because, you know, my my journey has been very different. But that feeling you described of not being equipped to handle the problems of today in economics with an economics degree is very, very relatable for me, too. Right. So I, you know, I did my bachelor's um, in economics and international relations. It was a double degree. And again, it was just a lot of conversation around these sort of, you know, old school neoclassical models. And then when I did my master's, I decided to do it in international development economics, but my focus was very micro. Um, and what I noticed again and again was that at least, you know, to whatever degree that it's prevalent, at least microeconomists are thinking about stuff um, because, you know, the data sets present themselves in that way, right? But when you look at the macroeconomists and when you look at the macroeconomy in total, there is such a path dependence from the systems that were already set in place. So because we started talking about GDP as this 
this you know this be all end all of 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 human prosperity a long time ago under very different circumstances uh i did feel like you know the of the economists who are looking at the macro economy were just really really relying on gdp and then for that reason even when they're introducing other more social science elements into it there's still that over reliance on gdp um so that's really interesting to me that you're coming from a place that starts with the ecology and then goes into economics and frankly you know uh i mean i don't think i'm qualified enough to make a judgment on the entire discipline of economics but i do think based on whatever i know that that is exactly what economics needs right now is a rethinking of the sort of structural pedagogy of the whole thing um so that's really interesting tim yeah i would even make a small addition because in the same way that we have ecological e- economics as a heterodox school of thought we have six others uh you know schools feminist economics marxian economics institutional economics post-keynesians austrians and a, a diversity of different research streams within these schools of thought so i think today the we we need a, a, a much more multi-theory interdisciplinary uh, economics that can not only capture all the complexity of the interaction between economies and nature but also the interaction between what is monetary and what is non-monetary which is something that has been ignored by many economists before the development of of development economics with the work of Amartyasen and then the whole development in the 90s of feminist economics and a lot of different methods to study economies without relying on monetary indicators and national accounting that you know render many economic activities invisible all the things you do outside of markets all the things you do outside of financial incentives then you don't see them it does not mean they don't exist it just means that you're not equipped to see them and so i think for us as economists if we do want to understand poverty inequality uh you know the the distribution of care work environmental degradation all these things we need to better equip ourselves uh to understand that reality yeah that's a great point in fact i think a lot of where the equipped part of it boils down to is just jargon right because sometimes you'll see people from different departments literally using different words to describe the same concepts and i you know i imagine subconsciously at that level this is how that disparity starts this is this is this is the kind of stuff that stops disciplines from becoming interdisciplinary um but yeah go on ronak we ranted a bit on this before getting into the topic <laughs> no, 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 no that's that's completely fine that's completely fine well, well i was going to assume you you said that you mentioned that you were going to do your uh, graduate thesis on degrowth yeah. as well right what were you planning to look uh at? so i was planning to look, so it was a very micro focus right so what i wanted to do was i wanted to look at real business cycles um and then i wanted to look at the way recessions manifest themselves in uh, the economy there's a lot of negativity associated with that you know above all there's a reduction in uh, quality of life there's a reduction in sort of individual you know purchasing power and earning capacity so i wanted to look at countries that have gone through recessions and the positives that have come out of that and then kind of relate that to the theory of degrowth um but unfortunately this was a very very early idea and you know i wasn't able to develop it the way i wanted to because there were other ideas that also similarly excited me that my advisors were more excited about um but i'm sure when we when we talk about degrowth and we talk about criticisms we'll get to recession and that uh that that comparison as well today sure 
so let's get to what degrowth actually is, because there's probably a lot of people in the audience like they've been talking a lot about degrowth, but we don't know what it is. So, Timothy, could you please tell us what degrowth economics is? I know it's, a, it's quite a lot to take in and how it is different from like the current economic system we have right now. OK, so I'm, I'm going to do this in a few steps. So the the broader definition is let's start from saying that degrowth is a concept. So it's a concept and often you can locate it in the discipline of political ecology. So not only in ecological economics, there are many people that are not economists, actually, that's the majority of them today that are working with the concept of degrowth. So a concept in political ecology in the same way that sustainability is a concept, eco-socialism, you know, the, these are broad concepts, eco-feminism. So degrowth is one of them. I'm saying this because very often people, they ask you, oh, what is degrowth in reality as a phenomenon? But before being this, it's a concept that was born at the beginning of the 2000s in France, that's been translated in English in 2008, uh, and that has uh, developed into a whole field of studies now with uh, around 500 uh, peer-reviewed articles a number of books, you know, people doing their PhDs on degrowth, like I did, uh, giving courses on degrowth. So it's it's a it's a concept with a lot of different ramifications and assumptions. There's there's a lot to unpack here, but let me move to the second step. If I have to really describe what the concept is about, is about the word I like to use is downscaling in the sense of if we start from the realization that exponentially and permanently growing economies end up pressuring their natural environments, and we'll see that this is also true for their social environments. So there's a, a core unsustainability about forever growing economies. Then the concept of degrowth is the task of downscaling economic production and consumption to a level that somehow it's, it's, uh, it can coexist uh, sustainably with its social and ecological environment. I like to see it as, a, you know, in English, there's this beautiful term of right-sizing. So if you think in terms of proportion, so now we have, you know, at, of course we understand from common sense that uh, we cannot build an economy that will be larger than our planet and you cannot work more than 24 hours a day you know there, there are certain limitations there are social and biophysical so but today we seems to have forgotten this so the in the structure of uh, the economic system we have today in, in most of the countries of the world structurally we have forgotten that there are biophysical and social limits to growth and so Having forgotten that, we're some, we've, we have trampled these limits and overshot some of them. Because it's important to, to say here, and it's getting a bit technical, that there's a difference between a limit and a boundary. You know, certain limits are just very symbolic in the sense of the limit of 1.5 degree global warming. I mean, we can overshoot it. It's not a limit like a wall you cannot overcome. We can overshoot it, but if we do, there's going to be a lot of problems. So somehow, having forgotten that we have social and biophysical limits, we've been overshooting many of these boundaries. And so the task of degrowth is to understand how can we step back and right-size the economy back to a level where it can do what an economy is designed to do, which is to satisfy needs, uh, you know, to satisfy needs to maximize well-being, but to do this without endangering our social and natural environment, which 
as we understand in feminist and ecological economics, is also, you know, the core ingredients of our uh, productive capacities. So somehow we can overshoot, overshoot boundaries now and we can see, you know, fishery collapse and soil fertility decrease. We can harm the climate and see, you know, an increased frequency of, uh, of extreme weather events. But somehow at some point in the future is going to bite back. And then, okay, okay, now let me, I can extend the third step. Uh, so degrowth is a concept. It study this main task of right-sizing the economy uh, to bring it back in harmony with society and nature. We say, you know, re-embedding the economy within society itself, uh, re-embedded within nature, you know, those three concentric circles. That's step number two. But then I'm going to extend to a more complex step which is in order to do that, then we open a lot of different questions. What should we do about finance? You know, what uh, will be the geopolitical implications of doing this in one country and not another? What should uh, be applied in, you know, uh, low-income countries versus high-income countries? Uh, what will be the consequences uh, for, you know, uh, hours of work? So here, from that core realization, we can have a lot of different questions and a lot of different concepts. And that's what I mean when I say that degrowth has become a field of studies. And now you have people that focus on uh, work in a degrowth or post-growth economy. They work, they, they focus on finance, they on very specific questions like I work on today and financing the welfare state and situation of, of low growth. So very specific things, but they all derive from that big realization that somehow the economy we have today, and here we'll get in more details, but I mainly speak of high income, you know, old capitalist industrial economies. Their economy is just too big. So there's something to be done about it and we have to figure out what. I, uh, I just want to also quickly add here, I'm so glad you, you introduced the, the dimension of international development there, Tim. Because, you know, I mean, I'm as someone looking at degrowth from the outside in, right, someone who got who's gotten, you know, his feet wet with other branches of economics. I there's always a certain level of hesitance once fields one feels when one hears the term degrowth. And that's because there is this kind of unspoken implication, um, especially if you haven't looked into the econ of it all. Right. So I'm sure many of our listeners today won't be economists. So whenever you hear degrowth, you're like, wait, what? We want to stop growing? And I think it's very, very interesting and it's very important to bring in that international perspective of, you know, it's a scale thing. There are some countries that are way bigger than they ever need to be and are still only thinking growth and not efficiency within the economy. And meanwhile, there are still other countries who desperately need continued growth. Um, and I think it's important to introduce that that perspective, you know, because we're here in Nepal and if you tell the average Nepali person that degrowth economics is the way to go, their first instinct is always, what are you talking about? All these countries developed to the point where now they're these superpowers and now they're telling us to stop growth. So I think it's, it's, it's important to bring that perspective up. You know, this doesn't exist in the same way across cultures and across countries. Sure. And, and that's where we can get really nerdy. Uh, and to, we need to understand here, what does it mean for an economy to grow? Because you say that, so we talk about gross domestic product, that's an indicator of national accountability, of um, accounting, sorry. I mean, my French and English get so mingled now <laughs> that I'm writing in French. 
Anyway, national accounting. Yeah, I feel the same. I feel the same with my French and English too. <laughs> Wait, we should we should tell the listeners before we started before we started recording. Ronak was showing off his newly acquired French skills to Tim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so GDP was invented in the 1930s. You know, during the Great Depression in the U.S. and uh, what it tries to do is to estimate the production the added value of production in one economy for a year. But, you know, it's difficult to do this because, you know, you have, it's very difficult to calculate the number of, uh, you know, potatoes you're growing and number of cars and hours of uh, nurses work and uh, educating your child and many things. So the economist brilliant ideas at the beginning of the century was to say, look, we're going to aggregate this into uh, an indicator taking into account, you know, prices, market prices, and that will allow us to actually make a big addition and to have one single number giving us the ultimate thermometer of progress. You know, if you see it rising, good, you see it decreasing, bad. Well, even Kuznets, Simon Kuznets, the guy who designed GDP back in the US, you know, he said, okay, I gave you this indicator as a crisis indicator for the Great Depression. You know, it's a bit like you're trying to reanimate someone and you're looking for a pulse GDP is telling you, okay, the pulse is increasing, but if you're trying to measure someone's health over a lifetime, you're not, you don't care much about the pulse. You know, you need to look at other things. So now the problem is uh, we've somehow developed growth into an entire cultural paradigm. But let me tell you something that actually economic growth has nothing to do about growing in the sense of um, what most people think of it. You know, we we've all had the experience of growth as a you know a baby of you know you you can see animals and and plants they grow. So you know I, I was very tiny as a baby and then you know I, I became bigger and bigger. But now I I don't I don't grow anymore. I, I still do. You, you could say I developed, you know, uh, my ideas and everything, my social relationships, but my body, my physical infrastructure is remaining stable. I've got a steady state metabolism, you know, an ecological economist would say. And so here, in the common sense understanding of growth versus development, you know, we mingle these two concepts and we do understand that certain forms of development are qualitative and cannot be measured by, you know, pound of flesh, is not a reflection on the quality of my scholarship and my ideas and how good I am as a friend or as a family member. Uh, but when we look at an economy as macroeconomists, we forget this. And we tend to assume that the more you grow, the better it is. And so we forget that sometime we can reach a state of uneconomic growth. The, the term is from Armand Daly that said that some point, at some point, you know, an economy that has grown for a very long time is developed all the physical infrastructure you need. But then it keeps being obsessed about, you know, building more roads and more highways and more, you know, big infrastructure that are maybe not very useful because they don't satisfy any needs, but they create the needs through planned obsolescence and advertisement and predatory loans and stuff like this. So all that growth is actually creating more cost than benefit. So a microeconomist would say it's uneconomic in the sense of, you know, marginal cost is higher than marginal benefit. So collectively, uh, we, should, we would be better off not doing it. And here, this, this concept of economic growth versus uneconomic growth is valuable when we compare different countries. If uh, you're a country like Nepal, 
And you do need to build more roads and buildings and, you know, start businesses that don't, don't exist, create goods and services that don't exist. That's going to look up as economic growth because you're going to see, I rather speak of economic agitation. People are going to get busy doing new things. And here, that's great. And most likely, you know, it's going to contribute uh, to well-being and we're going to see this correlate with quality of life, uh, correlate with, you know, levels of education and health, uh, measures of health and, and many other things and, you know, uh, quality of transportations and things like this, a diversity of product you have access for. But if you keep doing this for a very long time, at some point, you will reach, you know, there's decre decreasing marginal, uh, usually on, on economic growth, you would say, like, you know, the, the more roads you'll build at some point, it will just not be very necessary to maximize well-being. And so at, some, at this point, we need to make the shift. And some people call this moment of making the shift degrowth. Some others, you know, refer to post-growth as that moment where we've reached the point where a marginal cost equals marginal benefit. And so we decide, fine, now is we just keep our physical infrastructure steady and we focus on capabilities, increasing capabilities in the sense of a martisan. So we focus on the need and we realize that certain of these satisficers of needs, satisfiers or needs are material, but many others are not materials. They have to do with social relations. They have to do with, you know, uh, positional prestige. They have to do with spiritual, intellectual, scientific developments all type of stuff that are not correlated with GDP in countries that have been growing for a very long time. Hello, everyone. It's Ronak from the future. Sorry for ending this episode abruptly. There is a lot of good talking points that we want to savor for another episode. Uh, episode 12 will come out sometime in the future, and there you can catch us, uh, myself, Shuvam, and Timothy, uh, talking about the criticisms of degrowth, as well as how uh, degrowth can be implemented in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit our website at resolve.earth. You can also follow us on social media. We are active on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at resolve underscore earth. That's resolve spelled R-I-Z-O-L-V-E underscore Earth. You'll find all the links mentioned here on the show notes below. Thanks again and see you next time.